we aren't creating shoes and t-shirts. Like, I really don't think that. I think other companies do, but I always tell people we're making costumes for superheroes. That's what we get to do. And I used to, I used to play the clip from The Incredibles of the little, the woman who would make the costumes for Mr. Incredible, et cetera. Cause I'm like, that's what we do. And that is an immense responsibility that we get to inspire kids, adults and everything. And, and I mentioned superheroes at the beginning, like that was incredibly cool. And I think that that's cool because I know how powerful sport can be to inspire and also help improve lives. Like we talked about sport is, is life with four lines or, or a circle drawn around it. This is Living As You. Here's your host, PQ. How are we doing on this fine fall day? Today on Living As You, it's your guy, PQ, bringing you a superhero. A former Cornell track star, a proud father to a beautiful family, and former senior product director of training footwear at the Nike headquarters in Oregon. James Connolly knows a thing or two about superheroes and establishing integrity and truth in the workplace. We sat down with James to dive into the importance of childlike curiosity, pushing against the norm, and taking the leap in the face of fear. Enjoy the conversation. And remember that you too are a superhero to someone in this world. James. Patrick, how you doing, man? Hey, it's so good to hear from you. How you doing? You got Central Oregon. I mean, tell me about it. How's life? How is Central Oregon? It's good, man. It's my happy place over there. So I just love, uh, love getting over there. And it's fun to, my, my little guy, I've got a four-year-old and uh, uh, almost one-year-old. Oh and so to have the little guy like just experience new things is super cool. Uh, got on a horse for the first time, caught a fish for the first time. So yeah, it's good, man. Stressful time at Nike. I'm not sure if you know that, but, uh, but it's, you know, it keeps everything in perspective to like be away and, and, do different things. I'd love to, James, would love to begin uh, by diving into the topic of curiosity, how curiosity has shaped your story and brought you to where you are today. You know, I I think, I mean, you're a sports fan, I'm a sports fan, like, there's something about sports Mm -hmm. that I think is like, curiosity at at its most primal and that sport is really the redefining human limits and it sounds super cheesy, but I think it's true. Like when I think about our kind of like modern day sports stars, like they're heroes or superheroes and they, they redefine what is possible. Um, and so I think, you know, part of the reason I'm at Nike and part of the reason that I want to work with athletes is, is to help them on that journey that help them redefine those limits of, of human potential and possibility. And to do that, like you have to challenge norms. Um, like things can't be done. If you keep doing the same thing over and over, it's the old cliche, you'll keep getting the same result. Um, and so you have to be curious around what can you do differently um, uh, in terms of, again, defying convention and, and thinking of it. Um, and I've also found that 
I think curiosity is a muscle that has to be trained like kind of everything else um, that we have, you know, much like you study to be better at school or you go for runs to become faster. I think curiosity is the same way. So for me in my life, like I've always blocked out time on my calendar um, an hour every single week um, to go do something that I haven't done before. We used to have at Nike, we don't have it anymore, but we used to have a design library. And so I'd go every week and just pick up a book or an article or listen to a podcast or a video of just something that I didn't have time to normally get to in my normal day. And there was always like some nugget that you could glean from adjacent industries, uh, different thinkers. Um, so, you know, I, th I think long way of saying, I think curiosity is super important um, because without it, you're just kind of stuck in the status quo. And, and again, you don't, you don't redefine what's possible. Um, for, for my case, the athletes that I am lucky enough to work with, um, on somewhat of a daily basis, which is pretty cool. Take me through a time, perhaps you're working with it with an athlete for Nike, or perhaps you were just starting off at Nike in which you really utilize your curiosity, as you mentioned, to push back against the norm. Yeah. Well, you know, I was lucky enough to be down in the innovation kitchen, which is where Nike kind of works on, um, advanced research projects and, uh, someone who became a mentor of mine was a guy named Sandy Bodecker. Um, and Sandy had been at Nike for a long time. Unfortunately, he has since passed, but he was the kind of mastermind behind the Breaking Two project um, with Kip Choge. And, you know, he really taught me that in order to achieve something that's never been done before, you have to challenge literally every single thing that you do. Um, so in the case of that project, you know, like I grew up around track and field and traditionally marathon shoes had been really, really low profile, lightweight, not much to them um, because the thought process was, well, just let the athlete do what he's going to do or, or do what she's going to do and kind of get out of the way. And Sandy really chart thought us of like, well, how can you augment and think about things differently? And so really flip the switch. And so it started at, at almost like going back to just the beginning of like, okay, well, what, what do athletes need to do to break two hours in the marathon? Like just that fundamentally, okay, they need to do X, Y, and Z, whatever those things are. Okay, well, how could we help them do that? And the result was a shoe that looked incredibly different from what we had traditionally made. And at first, like a, few, a lot of people were like, ah, I don't know, like, the stack heights are really high. It's really tall off the ground. Like, I don't think they're going to like that. Like, but once they tried it and the science came coming up, like those things took care of itself or, you know, the heel on that had a really elongated heel. Um, and it looked goofy at first. People were like, what? I, I don't get it. But it was because like we went back and we challenged convention of like, why, why do heels of shoes look a certain way? Well, there's no really good reason. So let's do it to have a benefit, which was aerodynamics. So again, like I think in that journey, Sandy really taught me to question everything. Um, even some of the things that, you know, another common expression, like the holy cow cows in your industry of like, you don't, you don't question those things and you should like from time to time, it doesn't mean you question them all the time, but from time to time, it's good to be irreverent and to, to try to break things up. Um, and I think, you know, he had a history of disruption. Sandy, he was the one of the people who helped 
Nike decide to design the Brazil national team, which at the time was super unconventional because the really the heartbeat of soccer was the UK or, or Europe uh, in large. But he knew that this Brazilian style of play, which was more flamboyant and attacking minded and just beautiful, more matched with like the Nike personality of kind of irreverent and different and it ended up being a perfect marriage. So again, it was another great example and another great thing I learned from Sandy of like, often the path that everyone else takes isn't necessarily the right path. Um, and you should go explore the paths that, um, that haven't been looked down if it, if it aligns to what, what ultimately you want to achieve. So that was one experience that was pretty cool for me to see. And obviously, uh, Kipchoge had a lot to do with breaking two too. So she's had a little bit to do with it, but he just, he deserves most of the credit. James, that's fantastic. What does that look like for you on a daily basis when you're incorporating what you learn from Sandy in terms of pushing back and challenging the norm? I know in my case, you have, I need to continually remind myself, hey, we got to keep pushing because it's easy to settle in that comfort zone. Yeah. You know, I, luckily it hasn't, it's not that hard for me because I know my role within the company that I exist in, which is I'm more on the business management side of things. So I always say like, if I'm comfortable with an idea, we're probably not pushing hard enough. Um, and to be comfortable in the uncomfortable, I think is what just I've gotten used to. Um, and what I think is the way it should be. So, you know, I have lots of conversations with my creative director of, Hey man, you're making me feel uncomfortable, but I think that that's a good thing. As long as you can justify that it, that it comes back to consumers. Now, I think the harder part of it and the, the role I play is just because I'm uncomfortable with, or I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable, doesn't mean everyone else around me is. Um, so I find I spend the bulk of the time um, trying to communicate to other people how they can be uncomfortable with me or comfortable in that uncomfort with me. Uh, and I think that that involves a lot of storytelling in terms of like trying to paint a image of where we want to go when we're not quite there yet. Um, and depending on like where you're at in your, for us, we make shoes, our creation process, like the farther along in the process, the easier that storytelling is because you have more and more of a shoe that's complete. But in the beginning of the process, when you don't have anything physical or tangible to show, you really have to tell stories and get people to buy into something um, without them seeing it. And that's really, really hard. Um, you know, we often hear about, oh, paint a picture of the city on the hill. What happens if they've never seen a city and they've never seen a hill before? Like, how do you, how do you explain to them that, yeah, over there is better? Um, and there's going to be times also where some people just might not get it. And you've got to be okay with leaving some people behind. You just can't leave the majority of people behind. You got to bring, you got to bring people with you. Um, and so again, that's a lot of my day to day is spent trying to bring people along on the journey, um, to new and different places. Love that. Dive into what you said in terms of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, it, it's realizing that, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, a lot of being comfortable in the uncomfortable happens with like lots of repetitions. Um, 
And the, those are repetitions of like lots of conversations back and forth. So, so if someone thinks that they're going to change someone's mind in like a single conversation, I think they're setting themselves up for failure. Now you might get them a large portion of the way there because you have an amazing speech or presentation or whatever it is, but more often than not, it's multiple repeated conversations and dialogue uh, that gets people to that place. Paint me a picture, as, as you mentioned earlier, about the, the concept of storytelling within your department, within your team. Mm. Yeah, uh, you got me back on track, so thank you. I, I think that you know this repetition is number one, as I talked about, but within storytelling, there are, we have so much in common as human beings, as athletes, that if you can tap into that, and just ride that that commonality to where you want to go you'll be in a better place so you know there are themes in everything that we're trying to do like be we all want to be better whether again back to the breaking two analogy like not many people can run sub two but a lot of people can um uh relate to this idea of running a race faster or being better at something um than you've done before and so, you know, when we have projects, I always try to go back to the athlete and what the athlete is trying to do at the most fundamental level. Um, again, almost that like primal level. And if you can identify that kind of pure insight or, um, or pure motivation, chances are you can unlink that back to someone else and have them buy into that journey. Um, so again, with the Kipchoge thing, lots of that not everyone's run a marathon so not everyone understands like how hard that is um but this idea of record breaking this idea of busting norms this idea of moonshots of, of doing things that we never thought possible everyone can relate to that in some way shape or form um whether you know it'd be my wife like never thought she could have a baby like and then she did it and you know you're, you're there um for me like i didn't have a two hour limit in the marathon, but I had limits on myself when I was running track and field and I found out I could break some of those things. Um, and all of us have, again, those kind of like primal, very, I think, innate stories within us. And if you can get to that insight, um, it, it's easier to connect everyone um, back back to the, the, the bigger goal. Tell me about a time you personally, whether it was on the, on the track or maybe at Nike, you felt like you had that breakthrough moment. Yeah, I, I think track and field, like track and field was probably the, the purest place that I experienced that. Um, I think sports a lot of times is, is life with four lines drawn around it, or in my case, a track and field, an oval drawn around it, where you get those repetitions. Like you, you get to have experiences a lot more quickly than you would in real life, you know? So in tennis or in track and field, like, I was racing every single week. So I got to retry something every single week. I don't get to do that in my career. Like I don't get to have the exact same circumstances, the exact same thing every single time. So it's harder to get those repetitions, but in track and field, you know, I ran the 800 meters um, and really you divide the 800 into four parts to 200 meters each part. And the first lap kind of takes care of itself. Like anyone can run the first lap. The key to the race is the third 200 and it's at that point where you actually want to put your foot on the gas and you want to accelerate. And the reason that that's so scary is because 
if you do that and you get to the final 200 meters left, you know it's gonna hurt really, really bad. Um, and so a lot of people don't make that jump. And I didn't for a long time. I was like, ah, I'm, I'm gonna put my foot on my gas, but I'm not gonna put it down all the way because I wanna make sure I have some left for the end. And it was that fear that I think kept me from really committing. And then there was one race where my coach and I had talked and, and he said, well, James, like, I don't care if you blow up the last 200, like just really attack the third 200. And I did that and it was scary. And the last 200 still hurt, but it didn't hurt nearly as bad as I thought it would. And I still had more gas in the tank. And so in that moment, it redefined like, oh my God, like I didn't even realize I could go that far. I didn't realize that, that my tank was that big. And every single race I raced after that, it became less and less scary to push that third 200. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that applies in life too. Again, cliche, but like, it's often the fear of the unknown that keeps us from making the leap and I would say almost all the time, it's not nearly as bad as, as we would have thought it's going to be. Uh, it might still hurt. Like, I think it's a little too rosy to be like, oh, well, you know, everything's fine after you take the leap. No, it might not be. Like, it might hurt really, really bad, but it's not going to be as bad as you thought it was. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I try to practice that as much as I can in my career right now. And even, you know, we're we're living through some tough conversations at Nike right now. And, you know, I immediately go, oh, what happens if I lose my job? Like scary, like it is scary, but I look at other people and I'm like, yeah, but other people came out. Okay. Like, so if I got fired, it would hurt, but I'd be okay. Like, and I'd find a way through it. And I think that you just can't get so consumed by the fear um, of those moments. And again, track and field in the 800 really taught me that. Um, I don't want to go back and do it again because the physical pain was, <laughs> was real. Um, I'm glad I learned that lesson and I can, I can apply it now in, in my real life and off the track. How can we put the pedal to the metal in that third 200 or take the leap in our lives today? Yeah, I, I think like number one is just the self-belief, again, the, that I kind of talked about of like the self-belief that it's not as bad. And so you, you, that's a personal decision. Like in that moment where you decide to put the pedal of the metal or not, that is a very, very personal decision. No one else can make that for you. So you've got to have that self-belief. I think the other thing, like I talked about my coach, like having people around you who, if you don't have that self-belief, build it up for you. Um, and uh, that's really, really important because for some of us, that self-belief comes super easy. For other people, you might need to work a little bit harder at it. In different moments, you might be different places in, in your self-belief. Um, so having people around you that support you and believe in your potential, um, I think is, is super, super important. Um, I think the other thing is just opportunities. Like you gotta have the opportunity to do those things and you got to be brave enough to even get to the starting line again I'm using track and field analogies but but you got to keep putting yourself in um, situations that uncomfortableness manifests itself because if not like you're never going to run the race you're never going to learn that there's more and you can be quite happy and content but I would argue that you're you're just missing out on so much more um, of, of what's going on like I maybe another 
poor analogy is like if we only operated when the sun was up, man, like we're missing half the day. Um, and you still got to sleep, of course, but like, like you gotta, there's more to the world than, you know, what you currently see in front of you. So I would say those things are, are important to helping you do it. Describe a moment to me early on in your career with Nike, when you're getting your foot in the door, you're starting to put that pedal to the metal and you're beginning to cultivate that self-belief and that team around you. I love, to, I love the quote a lot you hear. You are the product of the five closest people to you. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I think like most recently at Nike is probably the most acute experience I've had where I came into a role that, that I was unsure about and I'd never done it before. So it was a new type of role for me. Um, and I knew it was going to be hard and I was scared. Like I really, really was scared, um, in that moment. And I was lucky enough that, that some of the people who just happened by chance to land around me were creative thinkers, were visionaries, were bold risk takers. Um, and so in that regard, I got really lucky. Um, but we started to think about what a future could look like. And it goes back to, again, kind of painting in a picture. And, and we, quick, we quickly aligned on like, okay, here's where we want to go. Um, and, you know, the first three months, we knew where we wanted to go, but there were so many people telling us like, it's wrong, you're not doing it right. Like, and I, I started to have a ton of self-doubt in that moment of like, like, are we doing the right thing? Like, Oh, like, I don't know. This is hard. Like, I don't know if I can do it. Like, but I think because we were so committed to one another as a team, um, and that because we believe that where we were going was so grounded back in what I talked about of like pure insight and opportunity, then we really were just like, no, we're going to stick through it. And we, and we kind of took the approach of like, what do we have to lose? Like, we've never been here before. Like, so it's okay. Like we're going to figure it out. And I was lucky that I also had a manager at the time who was like, Hey, like know that you're here to learn in this job. Uh, so that was a really good thing. But, but eventually the, the product came out and it's done really well in the marketplace, but that takes two years, you know, from the concept to, to going to market. Um, and so I think in that time, like I really learned, like, don't listen to the doubters. Um, and just stick to your guts. Like, um, and if anything, if I, as I look back on it, I would have gone faster. I would, I would have, I would have moved the doubters out of the way even quicker. Um, might've been more painful, but I would have done it, um, to move people along. So I think it, like you brought up five people, it doesn't take a ton of people to, to get a vision over the top. Like for us, it was really three of us, like, and that's all it took was three of us to like get it going. And then as momentum started building, more people came along uh, and, and that, that influence got bigger. And you said this in the past, which I absolutely love. You could have the greatest idea in the world or someone could come to you or a colleague at Nike and say, hey, I got this idea. But if you don't frame it correctly, it's going to be hard to, to allow it to keep going, to get it, get it over the top. Bring me into your mind when you have these creative ideas or when you're with your team and you guys are trying to again, frame these ideas in a way where again, you can put that pedal to the metal, you can keep going. 
Yeah. When, when we talk about ideas and framing them up, like the number one thing that I say is it has to be simple. If you're like describing something that takes you 45 minutes to describe, like you've lost people. It just goes back to like our attention spans, like, and especially now, like, especially in the world of social media and everything. Like, I mean, there's studies that show human attention, attention spans are becoming less and less. So like, it has to be simple. Um, and again, to be simple, I think it, I'm broken record here, but going back to, it has to tap into truth and truth at its most primal level. So, you know, we've, we've done a lot of that of like, I always ask my team, like, is it simple enough? Is it clear enough? Do you need that? Can you get rid of it? And like a lot of times we use storytelling aids, could be a video, could be a PowerPoint or keynote or whatever. And I always ask the team, like, do you need that slide? Do you need that second of video? Like if it doesn't enhance your story, get rid of it because it's one more thing that's going to complicate what you want your audience to take away from it. And so on the project that I was talking about of this new kind of silo that we were, that we were working on, um, we got it down to two words. Like that was what we were focused on. Like, and it's hard because like, if it's only two words, then those words better be the right words. And I think a lot of times people use more words or more images or more as a crutch because their idea isn't sharp enough. And so even though it's painful to like, debate and like, well, is this word the right word or that word the right word? It's important because once you get it, it, it just makes it easier for everyone else to understand. And again, Nike's done some of the best of that over the history of the company, you know, or of, of the sports industry of words or a series of words that like cut through and mean something uh, in a really powerful way. So yeah, simplification and, and again, getting down to the, the core nugget, I think is the most important thing. You've alluded to this multiple times already, whether it's through simplification, kind of uh, putting on the blinders, putting the pedal to the metal, really simplifying things and going in. How do, how do we better do that? Especially in a world, in a society with media, with technology that has very, very positive benefits, mm -hmm. but many times, especially where we are right now with, with the world being quite polarized, especially before this election, how can we filter through the noise? You're absolutely right. The noise is both good and bad. The noise is good in that for me right now, I can go out and I can interact with consumers or athletes that I've never met all over the world uh, because of their social media presence. And that's pretty powerful that I have all of that at my disposal on my phone. Now, the hard part is how do you edit and curate? all of that down for for my team like we often do exercises of literally sorting of of words and themes like you know we've done things like just literally put post-it notes up of themes or ideas or images and then start to sort them into okay all these things fit together all these things fit together all these things okay now we've got we've got three themes okay let's spend some time on those three themes are they really all three themes or is it actually two themes is it actually five themes um, so I think that sorting and curating becomes really, really important in that process. And I've always been surprised at how quickly truth cuts through. It's really easy when you see it all. And, and this is something maybe I'm blessed that I'm able to do. I can see this really a large breadth of information and get to, to fewer things really, really quickly. I've, that's just always come easy for me. But 
I think that that truth finds its way through pretty easily. And so, you know, for people, I was, I would always say like, if you're good at it, great. Like keep working on that. If you're not good at it, spend time with people who are good at it. You know, I've, I've worked with people like that. Again, it's always come a little more easily for me, but I also love helping people with it as well. Um, so don't be afraid to ask for help in that process as well. And I would say it's also good to ask for help, even if you're good at it, to just get a second set of eyes on it and be like, hey, are these truths resonating with you as well? Or is it, or is it just me? Um, so yeah, help is always a good thing. Don't be afraid to ask for it. Love that. Tell me about a particular time Again, maybe maybe early on in your career with Nike uh, or more recently, where the concept of the constructive criticism, the constructive feedback has come up, maybe particular with your team. Because I think especially when you come to a team atmosphere, trust, constructive feedback, and the ability to be vulnerable with people and say, hey, like I understand feelings are going to get hurt at times. I understand that things are going to be said that are hard to hear. But at the end of the day, how can we make people realize this isn't an attack on you personally? How do yeah. you cultivate, go throughout that process? Yeah. Well, I, I think, first of all, like I tend to treat feedback very personal in that if I'm going to come in and I'm going to blow something up, I'm not going to do that in front of a big group. I, I'm going to pull someone aside and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And I think the reason for that is, is because number one, the audience in which you give feedback is really important. When it feels like you're putting someone up on a stage and, and tearing them down, that doesn't feel good, regardless of how you say it. Um, so I think like finding the right venue to give feedback is super important. And honestly, like what you say out of a meeting can sometimes be as powerful as what you say in a meeting. So I think that's, that's one thing. I think the other thing that I always do, and again, broken record, is go back to the truth. When we, when we talk about shoes and a designer, it's their baby, they designed it and everything. Like, I'm not saying like, why did you put the swoosh there? The question is, why does the consumer that you're serving, why do they want it there? And then it's not about your decision. Like I'm not attacking your decision and you're, I'm just asking, walk me through your logic. And if you don't have a good reason, then they're gonna get the message that they got to go back to the truth and, and to the solution. And, and I think that that's super important to not attack like, or criticize or give feedback on an individual decision, but, but like, how did you get there? And, and so those are things that, that I try to do. The other thing is, I think it's really important to always read how someone is receiving feedback. Um, so once, once you're in the right venue and you've given the feedback, you can nine times out of 10 tell how that's landed with the individual. Did it land with the intent in the intended way or not? And I've often, again, it goes back to like, I often after meetings, if I can tell something didn't work the right way, I'll pull someone in my office or right now call them and say, Hey, like I noticed that, you know, when I said this, you maybe didn't understand it. I want to talk through it with you a little bit more. I want you to understand. I want you to give me feedback too. I think that that's really important. And then I'd say that the final thing is you as a leader also have to be vulnerable that your feedback might not always be the right feedback. Um, and I think sometimes as leaders, we fall into this like, oh, I'm always right and this is the way it is. And I think actually framing it in the way that I did of like, go back to the truth 
if they can walk you through how they got there and it's not, not maybe what you thought, then, then they're right. And it's okay to, as a leader, admit that you're wrong sometimes and say, hey, I gave you this feedback, but actually you've shown me a different way and that's okay. And I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna go with you on that. Um, so don't think that, again, there's only one way to kind of the right solution. You're hitting on the idea of truth a lot. And I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. And to me, when I, James, when I think about the idea of, of truth, um, the, the image of, or the, the concept of defining moments, that's something that really resonates with me, most likely because of my context, my upbringing. If you were to think about truth in your life, could be your career with Nike, it could be your experience traveling across the world, being a dad. Tell me about a, a specific defining moment or moment of truth that resonated with you and has really contributed to the person you are today? Oh man. Yeah. There's been, there's been a handful and, and the, I think they're, they're the ones that like really pull on your heartstrings a little bit. So uh, some of them are going to be cliche, but I'll, I'll talk about um, a couple. I, I remember when my dad dropped me off at college and I, as you know, I went to college on the East coast. And so it was a big deal, like moving all the way across the country and wasn't going to be around my parents. And when he dropped me off, my dad started crying. And it was the first time other than when my grandmother died that I saw my father cry. And in that moment, I wanted to get off and I wanted to do college things. But as I walked away, it dawned on me how important this opportunity was that I was getting. And here I was, my parents were immensely proud of me. That's why my dad was tearing up. But that pride comes from, I do have a good opportunity in front of me. And so, you know, that was a defining moment for me of don't take these opportunities for granted. And of course I was a college kid and I screwed some things up, but I always went back to that, you know, of, of the opportunity that I had um, and that my parents had given me. So like, that was one that, that really jumped out at me as, as super cool. The other couple other things I'll hit, that's like more family. Uh, I'll stick on the family thing. When my son was born, my first son, it's crazy. The whole process is crazy. More respect for women. They go through that than, than anything. If, if men had to go through that, we would have been extinct long ago. Um, it was, yes, my son being born, but I was incredibly struck, struck by the strength of my wife in that moment, that she could go through that to give birth to another life, to give me a son, to make her a mother. And I was just immensely struck by like, wow, I, I wish I can display that kind of strength because I've never, ha I've never have been through that. I never will go through that, but it, it was just kind of like awe-inspiring me in that moment. Those were, you know, a couple uh, examples, you know, another one that jumps out from my Nike career, um, I had an opportunity to work on the Livestrong business, which was Lance Armstrong, and we can get into the Lance and his fall from grace. But when I was working on it, it was before all of that happened. And Lance was a symbol of hope and the Livestrong Foundation was a symbol of hope. And I remember going down to visit Lance um, and we stopped in at his foundation office and um, all over the walls in, in this foundation office were uh, letters from uh, sick kids, from mothers and fathers of, of sick kids, from uh, older people who were just about to pass away from cancer, from people who had beat cancer, and how inspiring Lance was and the message of Live Strong. 
And it was in that moment that I really realized the responsibility we have at a company like Nike and, and with the athletes that we work with is we aren't creating shoes and t-shirts. Like I really don't think that. I think other companies do, but I always tell people we're making costumes for superheroes. That's what we get to do. And I used to, I used to play the clip from the Incredibles of the little, the woman who would make the costumes for Mr. Incredible, et cetera. Cause I'm like, that's what we do. And that is an immense responsibility that we get to inspire kids, adults and everything. And, and I mentioned superheroes at the beginning, like th that was incredibly cool. And I think that that's cool because I know how powerful sport can be to inspire people um, and also help improve lives. Like we talked about sport is, is life with four lines or, or a circle drawn around it. So if like one pair of shoes I, I work on makes one kid play sport for one more season, they'll be better off because of it. Or even just one more game, they'll be better off because of it. That, that was one of those defining moments of just seeing like how impactful a superhero can be uh, in that moment. And our world needs more heroes desperately. Agreed. Agreed. James, thank you. Take me through a moment maybe when you were able to see that kid put on the Nike shoe, put on the Livestrong wristband, throw on a Nike headband. Yeah. Well, I mean, I see it all the time, which is the best part of working on product at Nike. Like I get a, I get to go out and I see it all the time around and, and it, that is immense pride. I think like most acutely I'm seeing it right now through my son. Uh, so we're season ticket holders for the, the Timbers uh, and the Thorns. And to see, it's the one Adidas product I'll buy is the, is the uh, Timbers kit. But to take him to games and to see him light up around that atmosphere and to see like just how amazing it is. And he comes home and he does the chants and all those different types of things. And, and then uh, luckily enough, I've, I've gotten to know a couple of the players and Will, my son, knows the players through me and, and like, they're like, again, superheroes for him. So to see that in my son is, I think, honestly, the most powerful visual that I've had. I, I see my other products out in the market all the time or I turn on the TV and you see them on the TV and, and, and it's, it's cool. Like, it's cool to turn on the TV and be like, ah, oh, like I worked on that, but you don't get the, the same reaction as you do sitting next to a four-year-old eyes are lighting up so i think like having that that personal connection is amazing and, and i think it like i need to probably continue to like pinch myself because i get a little numb to the seeing athletes on tv and doing that because i've just i've been around it for a little bit but it's cool it's really really cool so i got to pinch myself and my son will continue to be a good reminder of of just how magical that can be for kids around the world. Take me through, what are your feelings or emotions when you're sitting inside the stadium? You got your son next to you going nuts. He's probably got the scarf on, the, the paint, your wife next to you. You're looking at her like the strength she had to bring your son into this world. What are you feeling? Probably depends on the score line, first of all, because I'm still a competitor uh, and I desperately want the Timbers to win. So they've got to do their part on, on pitch. It's just happy just happy and everything else kind of like fades away. Like I don't think about the unfun parts of my job or the stressful parts of being married or kids and all those like, the, the, like it's, it's great. All these things are great, but there's also stress and challenges that come with it. So being in those moments when you can just enjoy something pretty simple, like a game or sport 
it's it's great because you just focus on that simplicity and and the objective of in the case of the timbers kick the ball into the goal and don't let the other team do the same to you like it's dead simple so i think i i like that and seek that out as much as i can in a lot of ways sport and is an escape for for a lot of us which is super powerful and we need that from time to time completely and going forward kind of in this time of uncertainty a lot of polarization just so much going on again how can we all stay present to moments like that when you're sitting in the stands with your with your wife hopefully uh, the timber timbers are up five zero or something crazy like that but how can each each one of us just stay present to each day and recognize that that's all that's all we can focus on yeah it's a really good question and i'm not sure if you've done like any of the headspace uh meditation app things I go there because I thought about the same thing when I tried meditation for the first time. And I thought meditation was this, this idea of like shut the mind off. And I, I can't do that. Like I, I just can't, I can't shut my mind off. Like it's not how I'm wired. It's not the way it was. And I love how Andy from Headspace kind of talked about, it. it's not about shutting the mind off. It's, it's about letting it go and we're a necessary nudge it back into positive thoughts or whatever. I think, what I learned from that is number one, like give yourself grace, like give yourself an okay that like, if you do think about the future, it's okay. Don't like beat yourself up that like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I spent so much time dwelling on the future. It's okay. Like that's going to happen, but just don't let it become the prevailing percentage of your time. And I think that that's where like the nudging comes back in, you know, like nudge it back to you should, should spend the bulk of your time present in the moment. And so, you know, there's lots of ways to do that. Meditation and the headspace uh, example is one way to do it. For me, work is actually one way to do that for me. Like, again, I have uncertainty in my work life right now, but I, I come back to shoes. Like we're making shoes and that's what I can control right now. And that's what I love. And that's what we're doing right now. And so if I can do that for one more day, that's a good day don't get me wrong, like my mind is drifted to tomorrow, but I don't know. Like, so I'm just going to come back to what I love and truth and all those different types of things. So show yourself grace in those moments, but then just come back to the things that you love because that's where you're most happy and just always have them pull you back, nudge you back uh, to that present. James, how can we support you going forward? How can honestly the world support you in the Nike community, especially during this time? Play sport. <laughs> that would be good. Take care of each other. Take care of yourself. That to me is the number one thing. Like I wish people would actually be a little bit more selfish right now and realize that if they get a virus, it's bad for them. Like it's really bad for them. So be more selfish, wear a mask, if anything, to protect yourself. <laughs> like if anything. So you know, I think like take care of yourself is number one. And I think if you take care of yourself in turn, you're going to take care of other people in this, in this weird time right now. It's kind of like, it seems a little reversed, but I think it's true. Yeah. Play sport. I think those are, those are the things that, that matter. I think there's cliches right now. I have personally always taken advantage of my right to vote, etc. I I've never really, I guess the, the community communities I've always grown up around have, I've always mm-hmm. voted, but as i educate myself more and learn more. Like I realize a, how hard that might be to be in, to do in certain communities. So enable that. Um, Cause I think that that's super, super important right now. And so, yeah, those would be a couple of things that, that I would need right now. Well, and one last thing for you, for, 
for anyone listening, anyone feeling really particularly hopeless during this time, during this election season with the virus, so much political and racial instability and just overall tension, mm -hmm. what would you say? What would you say to anyone out there who's feeling down and looks at you as, okay, someone who is that superhero in this world and giving not only kids, but all consumers, all people hope? Yeah. I think the good guy always wins in the superhero analogy. It might be a weird path to get there, like, but, but they always win in the end. So I'm incredibly optimistic about the future. I think that there are way more good people than bad people in this world. Way more, not even close. And I think that those people will win in the end of the day. Now, there might be some people that take us down and, uh, and distract us in the short term, but it will be exactly that. It will be a short term. I remember when, when President Obama was elected, I'm thinking about him, I'm reading his wife's book right now. And Great book. Really good book. I had no idea about her background. It's unbelievable. That seems so long ago now, <laughs> like crazy long ago. And it also felt like it went by in just an instant. I really believe that like the good guys will win and we're gonna look back at periods and this coronavirus will feel like a blip, a big blip, but like it, it will go by like really, really quickly. The presidency will go by really, really quickly. I hate to be political, but I can't help myself. Uh, and we keep progressing forward. And I think that in that march, good always triumphs. Um, and so I, I look at the longer arc than the shorter arc in, in these moments to give people hope. James, I couldn't agree more. Hey, this is tremendous. Thank you hey, no problem, man. for your time. This is this is just awesome getting to talk to you today. No worries, man. Well, let me know how else I can help. Always here for you.